Truly, if the wicked are turned into hell, at least St. Louis will be strongly represented there. From the river to the valley to the sea. Welcome to the Mississippi Valley Traveler Podcast. I'm Dean Klinkenberg, and I've been exploring the deep history and rich culture of the people and places along America's greatest river, the Mississippi, since 2007. Join me as I go deep into the characters and places along the river, and occasionally wander into other stories from the Midwest and other rivers. Read the episode show notes and get more information on the Mississippi at MississippiValleyTraveler.com. Let's get going. Welcome to Episode 6 of the Mississippi Valley Traveler Podcast. Today I have two stories about a very tough year for St. Louis. Two disasters, both of which could probably have been avoided. Both of these stories are covered in more detail in my forthcoming book, Mississippi River Mayhem, which comes out this week. Uh, as I record this, today is uh, September 13th, 2022. The first story is about a cholera epidemic. Now, I realize that a story about a disease may not exactly be what you want to hear right now. I get it. Imagine the fun I had researching this epidemic while we were in the middle of the COVID pandemic, so feel my pain a little bit, too. The second story is about the terrible fire of 1849 that devastated the heart of St. Louis. And just to mess with St. Louisans, the, the fire broke out in the middle of that cholera epidemic. One lesson from this, things can always get worse. I like the stories in this episode, though, and not because I take pleasure in tragedy. I'm not that person. Uh, I like them because they feature people who make extraordinary sacrifices um, to help out their neighbors, essentially. I, I like knowing that we're capable of, of making those extraordinary efforts to help out people in our community and uh, the people around us. Of course, there are also people who sink to new lows when tragedy strikes, and we sure, we sure hear enough about them today in our 24-7 news ad addiction cycle. These kinds of stories, though, to, uh, that I'm telling today, I think shine a light on people more like you and me, you know, people who do their best under the most difficult of circumstances to try to make sense of what's going on uh, and to make something good come from it. Thanks to the Patreon supporters. I appreciate your ongoing support for the podcast. Uh, thanks to the rest of you for listening. And now let's get on to the stories. European imports to North America included things like honeybees and apples, two things we certainly enjoy today. But those uh, European ancestors of ours also brought disease. And you know we're kind of familiar with some of these stories that uh, the diseases that Europeans brought included smallpox, measles, influenza, typhoid. Europeans generally had some immunity to these diseases because they'd been exposed to them over generations and had a chance to, for their bodies uh, to build immunity and pass that on to their children. But indigenous people in the Americas, of course, did not. Um, so those diseases killed entire communities in some outbreaks. There are other diseases that uh, Europeans also brought to the Americas that ended up having a much bigger impact on European and American communities, though. These include diseases like cholera, malaria, and yellow fever. 
Many of the worst outbreaks of these diseases were in cities and communities along the Mississippi River, and travel along the Big River proved to be an efficient way to spread them around. In the 19th century, uh, our, our cities were not pretty places. Uh, maybe we glorify those years a little too much, but if you walked around a 19th century city, uh, if you had the opportunity to do that now, it's a messy place, stunk like you can't imagine, noisy. Um, at that time, you know, by the mid-19th century, folks were just beginning to understand how sanitation impacted health, but very few cities had built sewers or wa clean water systems. People generally just dumped their waste in the streets, and then horses, oxen, pigs all roamed freely, and they left behind large piles of feces in the streets as well. Much of the, that human and animal waste then flowed right into the wells, ponds, and rivers that people drank from. So when the cholera bacteria found its way to North America in the 1830s, it would really thrive in these conditions. And cholera would end up killing tens of thousands of people in North America, and nearly everyone else would be terrified of it. The first known cases of cholera arrived in North America via Canada and New York City in 1832, probably arrived on ships that were packed with immigrants who were arriving from countries in Europe where a cholera pandemic had been raging across the continent from Russia to England. Cholera eventually hit places along major rivers, including New Orleans, and by the end of that first year, 4,000 New Orleanians had died of cholera. Getting the disease was, was just not a fun experience. You would have severe bouts of watery diarrhea, you'd vomit a lot, you'd get severe leg cramps, it could take a couple of days for symptoms to show up, but some infected people got sick within a few hours. Most people, luckily, only experienced mild symptoms, and when people died, it was usually from dehydration caused by all that vomiting and diarrhea. Today, we know the best treatment is hydration, which is just drinking plenty of clean water. If you got cholera in the 19th century, though, you were treated by bloodletting, purging, or opium. One drug treatment of choice was Perry Davis's painkiller, which was a powerful mix of whiskey, opium, and capsicum. It didn't cure cholera, but at least you didn't feel much at all, so that had that benefit. Doctors also sometimes prescribed a drug called calomel, which was a, a powder that was a, a mix of chlorine and mercury. So if the cholera didn't cure, if the cholera didn't kill you, the cure just might. There just wasn't very good understanding of how cholera was transmitted at the time. Uh, people often blamed miasmas, which is basically air fouled by rotting organic matter. It's an old idea, one that goes back at least to the Greek physician Hippocrates, who uh, proposed the idea about 2,400 years ago. It was also common for some people to blame uh, disease outbreaks on immorality. In 1835, a religious newspaper proclaimed, we regard cholera as the judgment of God upon a sinful nation, an intemperate, ungrateful, Sabbath-breaking nation, a nation which has robbed and spoiled the Indian and withheld that which is just, just and right from the enslaved African. Cholera will go where it is sent. Best advice? Be ready for death. Death stands at your door. Repent of your sins. Cholera came and went over the next couple of decades. And then it came back big in 1849, and St. Louis was one of the places that was hardest hit. At the time, St. Louis had a, was a city of about 77,000 people and growing very fast, and it had all those usual 19th century urban problems with waste. 
there was a, a a place called Shoto's Pond, which was a I think it was a man-made lake uh, that was near, not far from today's Union Station. For the early part of the 1800s, it was a nice respite for many St. Louis uh, uh, St. Louisans, a place where you could go down to relax by the water and maybe get a little break from the city's heat and humidity. But throughout the 18 or the 19th century, factory waste and sewage runoff uh, turned that respite into a cesspool that was primed to fuel an epidemic. In January of that year, of 1849, the first cases of cholera showed up in, a, in riverboat passengers. The city downplayed it. Uh, the newspapers really didn't report much at all about it at the time. They didn't want to panic people. And cases really were just a trickle uh, throughout the spring. But by the second week in May, it was a completely different story. Uh, in that second week in May, 181 people died from cholera. Religious leaders prayed for an end to the immorality they believed caused it, but not everyone was buying that idea. One St. Louisan wrote to a relative, Truly, if the wicked are turned into hell, at least St. Louis will be strongly represented there. A major fire on May 17th slowed the spread of cholera for a little while. I'll tell you about that fire in just a minute. People fled the city, including most of the city council. Council members later came back just long enough to transfer power to an ad hoc group of citizens who did stick around, and that group formed the Committee of, uh, the committee of Public Health, uh, and they managed the cholera crisis. The new group aggressively attacked disease and sanitation practices were one of their primary targets. The committee, among the many things that they did, they set up temporary hospitals for cholera victims. They assigned doctors and nurses to work at those particular hospitals and they hired their first employee to provide sanitation services. This person's entire job was to collect garbage and towed it to locations where it wouldn't pose a threat to public health. The committee ordered regular purification fires, which was a common approach at that time to counter those miasmas that were blamed for spreading disease, to purify the air of infectious agents. Each night around 8 o'clock, they had barrels filled with coal, sulfur, and tar, and sometimes with wood, and they set them on fire. The streets would then fill with a dense smoke that was meant to suffocate the bad vapors that they assumed were making people sick. Generally, they just made people feel even worse. While health officials didn't fully understand the role of foul drinking water in transmitting the disease, they kind of suspected there was a connection. Uh, a network of inspectors scoured the city and uh, went around draining pools of standing water. The city opened its water hydrants to supply clean drinking water, relatively clean drinking water from its new reservoirs to the poorer citizens. But still, the epidemic raged on. Despair settled over the city, and, and not just because of those purification fires. Eliza Keysacker Howard wrote to her sister, It is indescribable, nothing but death. You may see a person well and hearty and the next day hear of their death. Every day is dull and gloomy. No one goes to church, no one to the stores, no one in the streets, but funerals passing all the time. Funerals ran almost nonstop. The streets uh, are the almost constant scene of funeral trains, one resident wrote, while the long, solemn tolling of funeral bells announcing that the destroyer is still doing his fatal works altogether has imparted a feeling of gloom among the citizens. The constant tolling of those church bells announcing yet another funeral became so overwhelming that city officials um, eventually asked churches to suspend the practice during the epidemic. 
Gold prospectors heading for California were among the victims of cholera. Bad timing on their part. So many prospectors uh, coming through St. Louis contracted cholera and died that one newspaper wrote that the riverbanks were covered with graves. On some days, as many as one-third of the dead were children under six years old. Uh, some children lost both parents. There were no social services at the time, so orphan children were sometimes taken in by religious organizations. The mayor also had the authority to place orphans with new families, an option that Mayor Barry sometimes exercised. I sometimes wonder about you know families uh, uh, who trace their genealogy uh, who don't really know that they had they might have a family member who uh, was raised by uh, an adoptive family with that, that, that they thought was their biological family because they had lost both parents in one of these 19th century epidemics. As the cholera epidemic raged on, the city got around to setting up a quarantine station uh, on the river. Every steamboat was required to stop, and city inspectors would go on board every boat and, and remove any passengers who looked sick. Those passengers were required to stay at the quarantine station until they recovered or died. Deaths in St. Louis peaked in mid-July, and city life had virtually ground to a halt by then. When a steamboat stopped at St. Louis, it couldn't unload its cargo. By August, though, deaths were starting to fall pretty quickly. The, the official death toll for the entire epidemic in 1849 was 4,547, 4, but uh, there are some who estimate as many as 8,000 may have died which is almost 10% of the city's population. If you think about it, you know, if you think about that today, if 10% of St. Louis's population died, that'd be about 300,000 people. In 1851, St. Louis got around to draining Shoto's Pond as a public health measure. Over in England, John Snow, through careful observation, figured out that there was a connection between contaminated water and the spread of diseases like cholera. And cities uh, finally got around to building new sanitation systems, but it did, it took some time. By the end of the 19th century, cholera was no longer a problem in the U.S. Still, uh, up to 4 million people every year suffer with cholera around the world, and it kills tens of thousands in places where, even today, clean water uh, is a luxury. If you're enjoying the show, share that love with other people. Leave a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Each review makes a difference and helps other fans of the Mississippi River and the Midwest find this show. Boy, we might think that we've had it rough lately, but uh, back to 1849 in St. Louis, you know, they must have wondered who had cursed their city. You know, as I mentioned, cholera wasn't the only cause of suffering that year. The evening of May 17th uh, began as a pleasantly cool spring evening. The sky was bright and clear. A light breeze was blowing from the northeast. The talk of the town was probably that ongoing cholera epidemic, which everyone was worried about. But in a split second, everyone's attention shifted. A brilliant light appeared over the levee, followed by the vigorous ringing of steamboat bells. The steamer White Cloud was on fire down on the levee. A night watchman had discovered the fire and rang the alarm. The city's volunteer firefighters rushed to the scene. They hooked up a hose to one of the city's fire hydrants and dragged it on board the boat just south of the White Cloud, the Edward Bates. 
they had a good vantage point there to direct water from their hose. They figured they could get the fire under control from there, but it was just too late. Uh, the white cloud ha had burned too far for them to be able to put it out. So they cut the white cloud loose so it would drift away from the other boats. Unfortunately, that plan didn't go so well. As the white cloud slipped away from the levee, the fire spread onto the Edward Bates. What happened next isn't entirely clear. Some witnesses claimed that the firemen and crew cut the Edward Bates loose, while others thought the fire burned through the mooring ropes. Regardless, the Edward Bates drifted away from the levee too, and as the current carried the boat downriver, it bumped into other boats on the levee and set them on fire. First the Belle Isle, then the Julia, eventually setting at least 19 more boats ablaze before it settled on a sandbar uh, at Duncan, Duncan's Island. The riverfront was lined with tinder for a fire. It was just uh, primed to blow, basically. Packages of hemp and stacks of lumber burned first, which ignited barrels of lard and bacon. The fire quickly intensified and spread to the warehouses and offices along the levee. Wood frames steadied the brick buildings and warehouses along the riverfront, and all that wood added still more fuel to the fire. The entire riverfront was engulfed in a wall of fire, with smoke so thick that it became increasingly hard to see a person a few paces away. More firefighters were called in as those on the riverfront were forced to pull back. A thousand people were soon engaged in, in fighting the fire, enough to keep it from spreading further north, but the fire was still spreading to the central riverfront thanks to the wind blowing some coals in that direction. Firefighters rallied to save the South Market building, which was probably one of the most important buildings in the city because it housed all the city's uh, records. They also managed to save a 15-year-old church that we know today as the Old Cathedral. Panic, though, took over the rest of the city. Francis Sublet recalled, Never did I see anything so awful in my life. The flames seemed as if they would come over Mother's house, and coals of fire larger than both of my hands fell all over the yard and the house. I never felt so much alarmed in my life. People tried to hire wagons to move their possessions to a safer place, but many of the wagons were already busy carrying the bodies of cholera victims. Wagon drivers charged crisis prices, and looters helped themselves to the items piling up in the streets. People were increasingly fearful. It didn't help when a, a loud boom echoed around the city. The steamer Martha, loaded with gunpowder, had caught fire and exploded. The shock waves lifted the firefighters nearby into the air and threw them back. Firefighters came up with a last-ditch, desperate plan. They proposed creating a firebreak, basically, by destroying a row of buildings on the edge of the fire. Volunteers hauled barrels of gunpowder from the local arsenal to the proposed break line. Six buildings had to be blown up. Firefighters had no way to control the timing of the explosions, though, so each one had to be lit individually. Then whoever lit that fuse had to run the hell out of there. One by one, the buildings went down. Thomas Tarji was one of the volunteers, carried kegs into three of those buildings. As he carried gunpowder into the last building, the home of the Phillips Music Store, one of his fellow firefighters thought Tarji looked smoke-begrimed and haggard. As Tarji entered that last building, a keg exploded. He never had a chance. 
Two other men in a nearby building, lawyers Wells Colton and Russell Prentice, were badly burned and died a few days later. Charji's remains were scattered around the immediate area. Uh, a portion of one of his legs landed next to a horse. The fire break, though, seemed to have helped. Uh, that and probably the nonstop efforts of all those volunteers. By 7 in the morning, the fire was mostly out. The commercial heart of the city was devastated. Hulls of burned-out steamers lined the riverfront. One reporter wrote, Steamers which were to be seen at any hour, thronging at the wharf, from north to south, are now visible only in black and rotten timbers, thrusting their jagged ends a few feet above the water's edge, as if in mockery of man's ingenious handiwork, which, would be, which should be so defaced in a few minutes. Over 400 buildings were destroyed, including the offices of three English-language newspapers and the telegraph office. Nearly 300 businesses were ruined, including two-thirds of the wholesale dry goods merchants and half of the grocery stores. Some people initially suspected that the white cloud had been set afire intentionally, but no evidence of arson ever surfaced. A fire had, after all, broken out just weeks earlier on the boat and in nearly the same spot. The city rebuilt, of course, and passed new building regulations aimed at preventing future fires, a lot more brick. The city also upgraded its water and sewage systems, and less than a decade after the fire, St. Louis created one of the first municipal fire departments in the United States. Remarkably, just three people died in the fire, including Tarji. His remains were faithfully collected and placed in a casket, then taken to Christ Church, where he had served as choir director. Bishop Cicero Stevens Hawks conducted the funeral. Because of the ongoing cholera epidemic, though, only a few people could attend. After the service, he was buried in an unmarked grave at, Ch at Christ Church Cemetery. His bravery has never been forgotten, though, and to this day, firefighters revere him for the bravery and sacrifices he made to protect his fellow St. Louisans. As I mentioned, both of these stories are covered in more detail in my new book, Mississippi River Mayhem, which uh, includes chapters on many other disasters and tragedies along the Mississippi as well. I hope you'll give it a, a read. And now it's time for the Mississippi Minute. I have been pretty obsessed lately with bakeries. Went on a road trip uh, a few weeks ago where uh, one of my first stops was at Crumpets in Fulton, where I enjoyed a crumpet bar. I like to stop at Sweetheart Bakery uh, just across the river from Fulton in Clinton, Iowa, and get a Blarney. Java Jive and Hannibal makes tasty cookies and other sweet treats. The Galena Bakehouse uh, in Galena, Illinois, offers tempting sweets from around the world, along with savory empanadas and Argentine cheesy biscuits that are so good. I can't seem to get to lacrosse when meringue is open, but look forward to making the hard decisions about which gourmet pastries I want to try. Alton's Duke Bakery has been pleasing folks with fruit tarts and cream horns since 1951. All this makes me wonder, you know, what are your favorite local bakeries? I, mean, I love local bakeries because they've, they're almost always owned by families that have been in the area for a while. All the money that I spend there, as I've said a hundred times, all the money I spend I know is going to stay in that community and help folks in that community. So uh, I'm curious, you know, what are your favorite local bakeries? When I'm back on the road again, uh, 
where should I go? And, and let me know, do they, do they make something in particular, something unique or special to that bakery that you think I should try? Leave a comment in the show notes, if you wish, or uh, drop me uh, a message at MississippiValleyTraveler.com. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the series on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on future episodes. I offer the podcast for free, but when you support the show with a few bucks through Patreon, you help keep the program going. Just go to patreon.com slash Klinkenberg. If you want to know more about the Mississippi River, check out my books. I write the Mississippi Valley Traveler guidebooks for people who want to get to know the Mississippi better. I also write the Frank Dodge Mystery Series that's set in places along the river. Find them wherever books are sold. The Mississippi Valley Traveler podcast is written and produced by me, Dean Klinkenberg. Original music by No Offense. See you next time. Mm-hmm.